This is going to be a verse-by-verse study of the book of Ephesians. Okay, We're going to read through and we're going to comment on virtually every verse that we have in Ephesians and try to understand. Now, in trying to understand, there are three levels, basically. First of all, the question we want to ask ourselves is, what did Paul mean when he wrote these words? Uh, Secondly, how did those people understand what he said when he wrote those words? And then thirdly, that's nice, but how does it touch our lives? How do those words that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago apply to us today? What can we? And we live in a totally different culture, a totally different age, speak totally different language. So how do we go about that process of learning the words that we have here in the English translation that we have and that we're using? All right. Now, there are three basic principles three basic hermeneutic principles that we need to know. You comfortable with that? What does the word hermeneutic mean? Oh, I get mean occasionally. What does the word hermeneutic mean? See, I used a word there that some of you might not have heard before, or used before, or if you had heard it, well, it means a principle of interpretation. Hermeneutics is the principle of how do we interpret from one language to another language or one situation to another situation. There are a number of basic principles that uh, are really important, and you need to write these down because we're going to come back to them. You're not going to like me for saying that, okay? But you need to write these down. Now, the first principle of biblical interpretation okay, is context. Context. The second principle is context. And the third principle is context. And the fourth principle, help me out, it's context. And the fifth principle is context. There are a number of levels or contexts in which we work as we work with biblical literature. To simplify it, uh, one context that we would ask ourselves, well, we're studying Ephesians. What is it? Well, we call it an epistle. Okay. Well, what is an epistle? Well, it's a letter. But it might imply just a little more than just a plain letter. Because you know, and I know, that we write different kinds of letters, don't we? We write letters to our loved ones, to our children, to husband, wife, parents. But we also write letters sometimes to the principal of the school. right? And you don't, when you start that letter to the principal of the school, say, Hi, darling. That's not going to work, you see. That's not appropriate. There's appropriate language for certain kinds of letters. See, um, And it's amazing what kind of information is conveyed when we use some of the style that we use in writing letters. If I get a letter or an email message and I open it 
And it starts out, Dear Brother Ian Fair, I greet you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Right away, I don't have to read the rest of it. I know where it's coming from. It's coming from one of my Zulu brethren in South Africa. That's the way they always begin their letters. It's part of their custom, you see. And so right away you can identify, you know, that this is coming from a South African, a Zulu, and he's a member of the church. Some years ago, uh, I had finished my master's degree at ACU at uh, the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa, and uh, I wanted to study missiology. And the foremost professor of missiology in the world was right there at the University of South Africa in Pretoria. And I really wanted to study under him. But I had learned that in the British world or the South African world, there's a different way of going about it. Here, you just write a letter to the person and say, hey, I'd like to come and study under you. And he feels very good that here's this person who wants to study under me. In the British world, in South Africa, it doesn't work that way. Uh, you have to be invited by that professor to study under him. Uh, what I should have done was have gone to the chairman of my committee that was working with my masters and that, and said to him, Dr. Brienkamp, I'd like to study under Dr. David Bosch in Pretoria. The process would have been he would then get on the phone and call David Bosch and say, I've got a student here that I think you would like to have study under you. Perhaps you'd like to invite him. Well, right away, if he doesn't want to, right away, he just doesn't invite me. But being ignorant and dumb, I just decided to write Dr. Bush, Bosch, a letter and told him, I didn't mention at all that I had studied at Abilene Christian University. That was sort of a no-no because at that time in South Africa, anything that came out of the United States was not very good. I mean, the Jehovah Witnesses came from here and the Mormons came from here and the Seventh-day Adventists came from here, you see. And so our South Africans look at that and say, yeah, that weird stuff comes out of the United States. My ancestry is Scottish. Okay, so you'll forgive me if I mention this. Uh, one famous New Testament scholar, F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, happened to be with a name like Bruce, Scottish. Right? Um, he once said, that theology was invented in Germany, corrupted in America, and corrected in Britain. Okay, that gives you the, the typical British attitude, you know, regarding that. Well, you know, I didn't mention anything about ACU. I wrote him this letter and said, I'd like to study missiology under you. He wrote me back a wonderful, really nice letter. And he said, I would be delighted to have you study under me because I've never had an American student study under me before. I looked at it and I thought, how did he know? What, where did he get this idea that I'm an American student? And so I thought, well, I better write him a letter and explain and get this thing sorted out. So I wrote him a letter and I said, Professor Borsch, you just need to understand that I'm not American, I'm South African. Where did you get the idea that I was an American? He sent me back another letter and he said, would you please look at the date that you put on your letter? 
guess what? Uh, <laughs> we put the month, the day, and the year. In the British world, they put the day, the month, and the year. Just that little information told him a whole lot of stuff. That's very important. That's what we're going to notice here as we work through Paul's letters. There's certain things that he will mention and express that if we're not sensitive to it, we will miss what's going on there. See, And so we're going to try and work through that as we work through Ephesians. Now, normally we call Ephesians one of the prison epistles. Okay? And normally it's considered that there are four epistles in our New Testament <clears throat> that are prison epistles. That will be Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. All right? Now, Philemon is just a little different from the other three. All right? But those are normally considered to be the prison epistles. What do you think it helps us to understand if we recognize that these are prison epistles? In all probability, Paul was in prison when he wrote these letters all right, to different churches and different people. So it helps us understand what was going on in his life and his experience as he works through these letters. And you and I know that our circumstances very often impact uh, how we address things. Right? Now, it's normally considered that the prison epistles were written from Rome, which is also important because it helps us fix a date, an approximate date to when these letters were written. Okay? Some folk think the prison epistles were written from Ephesus, which is a possibility. But if they were written from Ephesus, it pushes the date of when they were written much earlier. And then you begin to see different problems arising. So normally it's considered that they are written from Rome, um, primarily to, I say primarily to three churches or three cities. We'll discuss that in a little while. And one person, Philemon, was not a church. Philemon was a church leader uh, that in all probability lived in Colossae. Now, when you read Philemon, and we will study him sometime this century, um, <laughs> we will notice there were certain things that Paul is going to reflect on as he writes to Philemon as a church leader that would have a tremendous impact on the church in Colossae. Because he, Paul is concerned that he needs to have a really strong personal example in Colossae to get the message over. And the personal example that you have in Philemon is, how do you treat slaves? All right? They all had slaves in their homes at that time. And the world in which they lived didn't have a very good role model of how you treat slaves. And so Paul wants the church in Colossae, where Philemon was living, to get a really good example from a church leader 
as to how you go about treating slaves. We'll talk about that some other time. Well, Ephesians is really fascinating in this sense. <clears throat> it's different from Colossae, or the letter to the Colossians, and the letter to Philemon, or to the Philippians, sorry. If you look at the letter to the Colossians and the letter to the Philippians in the closing of the letter, there are some personal greetings. Like, greet this person, tell this person this, whatever it might be, personal greetings, which personalize the letters. In Ephesians, there are no personal greetings in the end of the letter, which tends us to sort of think, might be this is not as personal as the other two letters. Okay. Well, there's another little interesting matter. <coughs> I'm going to read to you from Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 from my translation. And I want you to follow carefully what, what your translation says. Okay? Here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God. What did you notice is different? Ephesus came first in my translation. Ephesus came first in my translation, but it said the same thing. Okay. Ephesus itself came first. You see, my translation doesn't use the word Ephesus at all. It's not there. And so that causes you to say, whoa, what have we got here? I thought that our New Testament was inspired, written by men who were inspired, and here you've got a translation. Anybody got the English Revised Version? English Standard Version? Okay. The English Standard Version has at Ephesus in there, and mine doesn't. So which one is right? That's a problem we have. It's not really a big problem. Let me just go ahead and jump ahead, and then I'll explain to you how we get there. Well, first of all, when I was asked by Mark to teach this class, because some of you had asked for me to teach this class, Mark said, I want you to teach an in-depth study of some book. And I said, Ephesians. He says, that's fine. So we're not going to float around on the surface, folk. All right? We're going to dig to find out what we've got in our translations and how valuable what we have in our translations is. How valuable is it? That was rough English first. Any English school teachers here? Anybody as a school teacher teaching English? Anybody got a master's degree in English here or something like that? One down there. But you, you taught English. Oh, okay. I've got to be careful, you know, how I get things pronounced so that I don't get you upset there. Okay. Vicky's mother has a master's degree. Her daughter, sorry, my apologies. My daughter. Her, her daughter has a master's degree in English, and she serves as the proof editor for heritage publications. So everything that I write, I send it 
to Christy, and she sends it back to me with red stuff all over the page. Because, number one, I fall into the trap of spelling things the British way. Right? Behavior, B-E-H-A-V-I-O-U-R. Savior, S-A-V-I-O-U-R. Program, P-R-O-G-R-A-M-M-E. That's what the Oxford English Dictionary says. But the American Collegiate Dictionary doesn't do that because as Henry Higgins, you know who Henry Higgins was? Henry Higgins, my fair lady, do you remember that? He said, English hasn't been spoken in America for 200 years. Okay. Well, Christy corrects my... Another thing on my part, you possibly find it when you read the stuff that I write, uh, British punctuation is different from American punctuation. British punctuation puts the comma after the quotation marks. American puts it before on some occasions. And Christie sorts that out all of the time. So we've got a little communication problem coming up here as we work through this. But we're going to dig deep into it. So, why does my translation not have Ephesus in it? Well, because my translation is a better translation than your one. <laughs> now, that's not completely true. If you look at the bottom of, there's possibly a little bark sending you to a footnote at the bottom of the page, all right? And if you've got a good translation, it will say some translations do not include Ephesus, all right? My translation does it the other way. My translation says other ancient authorities read who are at Ephesus and faithful, but mine doesn't read who are at Ephesus and faithful. Now, the reason for that is, as you know, Ephesus was, Ephesians was written almost 2,000 years ago in Greek to people who spoke Greek by a man who spoke Greek but who was a Hebrew, a Jew, you see. And so one of the things we need to understand uh, as we work with Paul, one basic to Paul is Paul was a Jew. And as a Jew, guess what? He thought like a Jew and he wrote like a Jew. And if you don't understand that, you sometimes have problems working through it. I'm a South African. I think like a South African. I write like a South African. But I have to have a Texan straighten me up occasionally. So what we've got here is behind our English translation, we've literally got hundreds of Greek manuscripts because Paul wrote this about AD 60 to 62, and he sent it out. And the Christians who got it were so excited about it, guess what they did? They started to copy it and send it to other places as well. And so we unfortunately do not have Paul's original autograph that he wrote, but we have copies of what Paul wrote so many centuries ago. And the people that copied them were very careful about how they copied. What do you know about the Dead Sea Scrolls? I saw them the other day. Hmm? 
I saw them the other day. You saw them the other day. Good. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls actually are some scrolls, very old scrolls that were found at a place, Qumran, just not far from Jerusalem, uh, by a group of people who were religious Jews who broke away from Jerusalem. They didn't like the high priest. And they gathered all of the manuscripts that they could find, you see. And part of their tradition was they believed their mission was to copy manuscripts. And even today, if you go to Qumran, which June and I were able to do some years ago, they actually take you into the scriptorium, which is open air, and you can see the tables in which they copied these manuscripts, and even the inkwells that are on those tables, and they've analyzed the ink to see approximately when it dated from. Fascinating stuff, you see. And so... These early people that copied these manuscripts did it very carefully because they were convinced that they were working with the Word of God. Okay? I had a professor when I was a student at ACU uh, who was really tough. If we wrote a paper for him, as you do in courses, he would tell you it had to be five pages, no more, and that at the, your, each page has to end at one inch from the bottom of the page, especially the last page, one inch from the bottom of the page. And if you gave him a paper that wasn't like that, guess what? He just put a line through it and sent it back to you. And so one time I went to him and I said, he was a South African, which you could expect, um, Dr. Malherva was his name, and I said, Abe, what's this business that you're so picky that these papers have to finish one inch from the bottom of the page? I'll never forget it. He said, I want my students to know that they are working with the Word of God, and I don't want any sloppiness at all. You be careful, all right? So that's how these scribes worked very carefully. And some of those very ancient manuscripts of Ephesians or the prison epistles that we have, who are cons- they are considered to be of the highest quality of manuscripts. There are three of those that are right at the top that don't have at Ephesus in them. Right? Uh, you know, we've got the three big uh, manuscripts that we go to. There's Alexandrinus, Sinaiticus, and Vaticanus. Okay, you possibly heard those words. They're complete copies of the Bible going back a long time. And two of those, uh, Alexandrinus and Vaticanus, don't have Ephesus in there, which tells us, might be there some questions here. And P46, another manuscript, uh, doesn't have it in there. And P46 is considered one of the most reliable manuscripts of Paul's writings, very early. And so we've got three plus some others very early manuscripts of Ephesians that don't have at Ephesus there. So at the beginning of the letter, it possibly didn't have at Ephesus there, and at the end of the letter, there's no personal greetings. So in all probability, what do we have here? We have a circular letter that Paul wrote to Ephesus, okay, that was copied by the Christians in Ephesus, and sent out to churches in that part of Asia Minor. Now, you know from your studies in the past that the church in Asia Minor, which Ephesus was in, Pergamum was in, you know, was the church was very popular. You remember Luke tells us that uh, while Paul was in Ephesus, 
all Asia heard the word of God. And the church spread rapidly. And possibly at the time that we're talking now with Ephesians, the church was stronger in Asia Minor than anywhere else in the world. Certainly stronger than Jerusalem. So, in my notes I said here, uh, get your Bible out, if it's got a map at the back there, and find Ephesus. Okay? I'll save you some time. Okay? It's there in Asia Minor. It's over on the very east side, west side of Asia Minor. All right? But where would you go today if you wanted to go to Asia Minor and Ephesus? What country would you go to today if you wanted to visit Ephesus? Turkey. And we all know where Turkey is, you see. Isn't it amazing that back at this time, AD 60 thereabouts, the church was the strongest in Turkey than anywhere else in the world, see. And so you can see how very concerned these Christians, if this letter went to Ephesus, how concerned they would be to copy it and send it on. So most likely that's, that's the best that we can look at as we look at the text. Now, does it shake you up too much if a translation doesn't have at Ephesus and yet it's considered to be the Ephesian epistle? How many of you are uncomfortable with that? You, you know, you, you won't offend me or upset me. I just get mad, but, you know, that's all right. Does, does it upset you that we have a very good translation here that doesn't have, have at Ephesus? Because, you see, it was a circular letter. Now, we do know that when Paul wrote to the Colossians, he said to them, be sure to read the letter that comes from Laodicea. So apparently there was a letter that was coming to the Colossian church from Laodicea. You see, and Colossae was here, and Hierapolis was here, and just across the valley was the church in Laodicea. You see, and so Paul acknowledges the fact that there were some letters going around in the life of the church in this part of the world, and he encourages um, the the church in Colossae to read that letter. Now we don't know what letter that was. It might have been something else, but in all probability it was that circular letter to the Ephesians. So what I want you to see as we look at this right away, yes, if Ephesus, and next week uh, I'm going to bring those two screens, or have somebody bring those two screens in here, and we'll move these tables a little closer together next week so we can, you know, be a little closer together, and I'm going to show you a video uh, that uh, we took in Ephesus. We visited the city of Ephesus and the ruins of Ephesus. And it's just absolutely amazing to experience that. Have any of you been there, had the opportunity to go to Ephesus? Okay. Isn't it wonderful? I mean, just to think that a city of that quality existed back at that time. Did you know they had water-borne sewerage in around about AD 60 in Ephesus? Right? So uh, we'll look at Ephesus next week to see some idea, get a feel of the size and the impact uh, of Ephesus on the church in that area. It was possibly the preeminent church of Christ 
in the world at the time Paul is writing to them. That's a big statement. But we've got, we've got information about churches everywhere and always Ephesus comes to the surface as being a pre- predominant message. So, so we're looking at a letter here. It's a prison epistle lumped in with several other epistles, three other epistles. Two of them we know were written to Colossae and uh, to Philippi. And we've got Ephesus. Yeah, it was written to Ephesus. Yeah. You know, I don't have any question in my mind that it was written to Ephesus. But the best manuscripts that we have leave that little bit at Ephesus out. Which makes Ephesus even more important that the early church thought so much about this letter that they had to share it with everyone they could find. And it went out everywhere. See? So that's the letter that we've got to look at. Okay. Now, there are different kinds of letters. We've already talked about the fact that there are different kinds of letters. So, um, obviously, some letters are personal. Can you think of one, two, three, quickly, letters that Paul wrote that were intensely personal? First and second, Timothy and Titus. But even personal letters have tremendous congregational importance as well. Because in those personal letters, doctrinal issues are discussed. Okay, uh, So we, we say Ephesus was not uh, a, a personal letter. It possibly wasn't a pastoral letter. Pastoral letters where, is where uh, the writer is addressing some issues that he sees in the life of a congregation and feels he needs to talk about those. Pastoral. He's writing as a pastor, all right, as someone who's looking out over the church and is concerned for them. Well, certainly, uh, Philippians would be one of those uh, pastoral letters, and Colossians somewhat as well. Well, Ephesians is just a little different. All right? It has some of those elements in it, but it is a theological letter. Paul is laying out in this letter some extremely important theological principles. And wow, when we get into that, it really has some great messages for us. Now, in the first outline which I was supposed to send to you, but I couldn't because I didn't have your email address, but I now have your email address. In that first one there, I said there are going to be some assignments for you. You don't have to do those assignments. Uh, If you don't do the assignments, that's okay. You will not make an A in the class. But, you you know, you'll pass. Everybody will pass. Okay. But here's what I want you to read for next week. Right. I want you to read carefully from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, down through to verse 14. Okay. Ephesians chapter 1, from verse 3 down to verse 14. Because in that block of material, Paul is going to make some of the most phenomenal theological statements that you could find anywhere. If you want to know what the purpose of the church is, he tells you right there. If you want to know what God's purpose is for you personally, he tells you right there in that text. It is, what, what is theology? 
I throw that word around a lot. What is theology? Okay, let me come back at it another way. How many here of you this morning, I want you to be bold, how many of you are theologians? We've got one, two, three, four. Okay, we're getting along there. Every one of you is a theologian. We just do it differently. Theology is the discussion of the important things about God and they impact your life. Some of you have got little children uh, and you're going to teach them about the Bible and you're going to teach them about Jesus. When you explain to them why you go to church every Sunday, why you go to Bible class on Sunday and why Jesus is important, guess what you're doing? You're doing theology. You're talking to them about God and how important God is in your life. And, you know, I'm, uh, we don't have too many here this morning that have got small children, but you're all experts because you've raised children and, you know, you know all about those things. I can remember when my middle son, Nigel, was six years old. I was working as a missionary and preaching for the congregation. We got up on Sunday morning and all got dressed to go to church. And we were about to go out and out the bedroom walks Nigel in his pajamas. And so his mother says to him, aren't you going to church today? Mistake number one. You do not ask a six-year-old, are you going to church today? All right. And he says, no. She grabs him by the collar and by his pants and takes him back in there and says, oh, yes, you are. Well, the question is, why? You know, when you explain the why, guess what you're doing? Theology at a certain level for a certain person. So we all do theology in some fashion. Some of us uh, have a little more experience uh, and some of us, you know, just have worked through the years with theology, but we all do it. So in this passage, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, down through to verse 14, is your assignment. And I want you to read through it carefully and see what kind of theological statements Paul makes there in that block of material. He makes some phenomenal, because he says, in Christ Jesus, God has blessed us with every spiritual need that we have. Wow! Isn't that something? There's not a spiritual need that we have that God in Christ Jesus has not already addressed. That's a biggie. All right? So look through that text and see other kinds of things there. And notice what he says there. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be his children through Jesus Christ. Wow, what does that say? That gets me all excited. Because God decided before he created the world that you and you and I could be his children long before he even made us. He had decided that we could be his children because of Jesus. 
So you can see how important Jesus is for our being in a relationship with God. So those are the kind of theological statements we want to look at there that help us understand that Paul is going to take that message that we see there and he's going to keep coming back to it as he goes through Ephesians. Uh, One thing he's going to say, you can't do it on your own. You cannot be the kind of person God wants you to be on your own. You cannot be the kind of child God wants you to be on your own. You need His Holy Spirit to be working in your life. Paul says as much about the Holy Spirit in these six chapters as he does almost anywhere else. You see? So you cannot be God's child and live as God's child without the Holy Spirit working in your life. Okay? So what I want you to be doing, and I'll try to do this as we work through the lessons, we want to find out what Paul wrote and said to the Ephesians, which brings us into a lot of context that we have to look at. And then when we've done that, we want to say, okay, what is he saying to us? Is there a message to us? Well, one of the things he said to the Christians in Rome is I want you to greet one another with a holy kiss I worked in a congregation that was a kissing congregation Uh, and I started there the first time uh, just as a young guy 25 years old and it took me a while to figure out why these women were chasing me around and backing me into the corner because they wanted to figure out who was the first one to kiss the preacher Benoni back in the days of Foy Okay, Um, but what did Paul mean when he said salute one another with a holy kiss? Were we supposed to go out kissing people? Okay, that's what he said. That's what he wrote to them. So the question we have to ask, well, okay, what does it mean? We have to look for that theological principle that lies beneath what Paul said, and it is an imperative. Okay? So we have to look to find out what is the imperative that lies behind the words that Paul used. So what would we conclude from that? As Christians, how do we greet one another? Appropriately, with whatever kind of greeting is appropriate. I struggled with this this morning. I had to get Carol on my side over there. Because, you know, one time I was teaching a... Uh, I was addressing a group of people, chairman of my Bible departments or the departments in the College of Biblical Studies. There were five departments. One of the chairs in there was a lady, Dr. Mariana Rasko. You might know Dr. Mariana Rasko. What a lady. Just a wonderful, grateful lady. And so after a meeting, she came out and she said, Ian, you are a male chauvinist. You know, you can tear a guy up when you say something like that. I said, I'm not. She, She said, yes, you are. So I said to my administrative assistant, Martha, am I a male chauvinist? She said, of course not. I said to June, she said no. Talked to a couple of the other secretaries, am I a male chauvinist? They said no. So I called my daughter-in-law. She's real sharp. She's working on a doctorate in Washington, the uh, University of Washington. And I said, Joy, am I a male chauvinist? She said no. I said, well, Dr. Rasko called me a male chauvinist. She said, did you ask her why? Bong. You know, I didn't think of doing that. I'm not smart enough. All right. So next time I saw her, I said, Marietta, 
Why did you call me a male chauvinist? She said, because you called us women ladies in a business meeting. And you do not call professional women ladies. That's a put-down. That's old-fashioned, you see. Uh, and so, I, I, okay, Mariana, what do I call you? She said, a woman. Okay. Uh, so, in future, after that, I, every time I addressed them, I said, women and gentlemen, you know, just to keep myself safe. So I had to find out what was the appropriate greeting for you folk this morning when I greeted you. Do I say, good morning, woman? Or do I say, good morning, ladies? But I, I talked to Jeannie there and I said, what do you think if I said to them this morning, Kuyamura, damas. That'll get me out of trouble, all right? Because that's good morning, dames, damas, okay? In South Africa, that's a, an honorific term. So you see, what I want you to see is when we use language, there are some principles behind using them to help us understand how those words are going to be used and applied. So that's what we're going to do as we look for these theological principles. Uh, try and find out, okay, Paul, you said that, and this is what the Ephesians understood. What are we going to do about that? How does it apply to us? So that's what we're going to work with as we go through uh, this study here. One of the things that we I hope to do next week when I show you uh, a video of ancient Ephesus is we have to ask ourselves what kind of city was Ephesus? What kind of people lived there? What kind of problems uh, were they struggling with in the church in that city? And you know, how or where we live in our cities or communities very often shapes who we are. Uh, some years ago, I was invited to go down to Sheffield, Texas. How many of you know where Sheffield, Texas is? Haven't you traveled around this country at all? Sheffield, Texas? It's just 40 miles away from Ozona, Texas. You know where Ozona, Texas is? It's just 80 miles from San Angelo, Texas. Okay, But it's way down there on the border. Those folk in Sheffield, Texas are all sheep ranchers. That's what they've done for generations down there. So they asked me to come down and do a leadership seminar for them. And so I was dressed like this. You know, I thought, I think this is pretty conservative, pretty nice way of looking. I didn't come in a t-shirt or something like that, or my blue jeans, although I was tempted to, and June said, you better not. And so I didn't. I put real pants on here. Yeah. Uh, the closest I could get to blue jeans, they blew. Um, and so I went there dressed like this. And one of the men came up to me afterwards, and he says, Boy, you are really liberal. And I said, why? He said, look at the way you dressed. Starch shirt and everything. I said, what's wrong with it? He says, down here, we always wear long sleeves. That's right. Those cowboys down in that part of the country, you will never see one of them in short sleeves. They wear long sleeves. What hadn't I realized? Those folk living down there functioned a little differently from the way we function here. 
See? So that's what we're going to have to look at as we work through Ephesus. Is how, what kind of people were they there? How did they function? What, what was the problems that they were struggling with? And so we'll dig into that as we work into that next week.